So welcome back to episode six of this third series of the Plowcast, um, focused on our current issue, Beyond Borders. I'm Susanna Black, senior editor at Plow. And I'm Peter Momsen, editor-in-chief of Plow Quarterly Magazine. And we are here with listener questions uh, and also some kind of general reflections on what we've uh, may have or may not have learned. Um, a reminder, if you have not subscribed, um, do that now. We're going to be going after this episode into six weeks worth of um, basically plow read-alouds, which are also great to listen to. And then we will be back with, ep- I guess, season four of our podcast for the next issue. Well, we have some really great listener questions today. Uh, are open borders required uh, for Christians to support? Uh, is Plow socialist? Uh, what are some of the other juicy things that we came in? <laughs> These are some really good ones. Let's start here. Both of you have said that you have some reservations about the idea of Christendom. Pete, what are your reservations about the idea of Christendom? Violence. So that the problem with historic Christendom was, of course, that it implied a unity of church and state. So I'm a member of the Bruderhof, or I'm an Anabaptist. I believe that following Jesus involves a commitment to absolute nonviolence mm-hmm. in the same way that he lived out, that he taught, mm-hmm. um, that love of enemy is incompatible with the use of, of lethal force against anyone for any reason, for people who are following him. So there's a big problem there with any confessional state arresting or torturing or executing anyone for believing the wrong things. And that's uh, my major reservation with what some people mean by Christendom. Mm-hmm. But if the idea of your idea of Christendom is rather that there is a Christian civilization, a civilization of love, um, to use the Pope's beautiful phrase, then that's, to me, the, the opposite of those bad things I just mentioned. And that's a kind of Christendom I can wholeheartedly support. Mine is a little bit different. So I'm, my, my dad's Jewish ethnically, and I am always very aware of like, all right, so what would this look like? What, what would my like little integralist fantasies look like for my Jewish family? Um, if they decide like, if they're, you know, I pray for them, they're not Christian. That is, they should not be compelled to be Christian. And now obviously this is, you know, there, there are many ways to talk about this. One of those ways is that in traditional, um, in Christendom as it was, the Jews were not treated great at all, um, but they were given a kind of um, status as, like, it, it, was, it is okay, at least in principle, for there to be non-Christians in a Christian civilization. Um, even in a Christian empire. And actually often the Jews were treated better under empires than they were under, for example, in, in England, uh, which was you know not part of the empire, which was a kingdom. Um, so I guess thinking more concretely, um, I, I pray for everyone. I want everyone to come to Christ. Um, I don't want anyone to be compelled by force to come to Christ. And I want there to be room for the Holy Spirit to do whatever he does with everyone in his own time. And I want there also to be a, a way for us to live as as um, part of a polity with each other, um, even if we don't share 
um, religious commitments because we do share, we, we share our humanity and we share our understanding of the natural law, or at least our, um, awareness of the natural law of what is, you know, of, of basic ideas about what humans are and what, what goodness is, even if we don't agree on those intellectually, I think we experience them directly. And I think there's a way for us to love each other politically, even if we don't share, um, share faith commitments, um, in the way that a family can love each other, even if they don't share faith commitments. And I want there to be room for political love among people who are not, who are, you know, among Christians and non-Christians. And so that's my primary reservation with the idea of Christendom. But actually the idea of Christendom in principle can include that. So that's kind of what I would say. And I think that just needs to be done with a great care for uh, liberty, liberty of conscience, which sounds, and some people will say that's a very post-enlightenment liberal thing to talk about, but it is not. Early church father Tertullian uh, speaks eloquently about there not being compulsion in matters of religion. And, uh, of course, that was when the early Christians were on the receiving end of compulsion in the matters of religion. But the principle holds true, too, um, the other way around. And it just holds true pastorally. I mean, I think in terms of my own community, the Bruderhof, where we are, you could say, a little Christendom inside our community living together, um, there is an expectation that uh, you not everyone will necessarily be Christian, but uh, we do expect that you will be open to seeking the w- God's will with us. That's mm-hmm. actually the language we use, and that's sort of the condition for an adult, at least, mm-hmm to stay a longer time in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, but that goes together with a deep respect for the mm-hmm. integrity of the individual co- conscience, which, mm-hmm. again, is not just some post-enlightenment mm-hmm. invention, but goes back to the heart of, of Christendom, that, yeah. that God wants willing followers, yeah. right? God wants people who uh, desire to follow him. And, uh, you know, th- there is also just pretty concrete historical examples. I mean, you know, you can mention, of course, most extremely, you know, the 3,000 Anabaptists being, you know, drowned and burned at the stake and so forth in the 15th century. And everyone says, oh, well, that's an old story. Um, but actually, it's it's kind of not that old. Um, and there's a, a softer version of it. Um, there's the little Mennonite family I know in Colombia. The, the country of Colombia had Catholicism as the official religion in the Constitution till you know, not quite a generation ago mm-hmm. and they actually had to flee their their native village because their kids were so bullied in school um for not going to the state mandated catholic ed- mm-hmm. religious education classes so uh, you know in what sense is the gospel served uh by a, a, any type of regime like that i think you know uh it, it comes back to the question what is truly a christian society mm-hmm. and uh I would argue that's actually not a Christian society. That's one going under the name of Christian that's actually um, oppressive. And um, so a truly Christian Christendom. A truly Christian Christendom, I think uh, I would go for. What's next? A friend of the magazine and of the community wrote uh, that you state that those who advocate using lethal force to keep out migrants are denying the faith. That was a quote from your um, editorial, lead editorial. So he wants to know, is that anyone who supports any kind of border enforcement, from Biden to Trump, from Ocasio-Cortez to Cruz, uh, all of these politicians support some kind of border enforcement? Is that what you meant, basically? Like, 
Come on, Pete. Right. So basically any Christian, and, and this was, you know, essentially the point that this writer was making to me was that if you say that any anybody who supports any type of border enforcement, which involves at least a threat of lethal force, um, is denying the faith is possibly not even a Christian, right? Mm-hmm. Is an apostate, I suppose, if you want to really push the line of argument. Um, that would apply to a heck of a lot of people, including probably some of you, our dear listeners. Um, no, that's not what I was intending. And in the context of the essay, I make it pretty clear that I was referring to some pretty literal, um, literally lethal things. Um, so, for instance, I have friends who work with uh, migrants in the Balkans. Um, some of them are or very likely are, real refugees, right? They are you know, at risk of their lives if they return to their home countries in Afghanistan or the Middle East. And there, um, if you have a hard border with barbed wire and armed guards, and it's the winter, and you have little kids involved, you very quickly reach the point where you're, you literally have people dying to enforce a hard border. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I was describing in the editorial was very specifically the situation of people using the language of preserving our history and heritage, Christian heritage as a justification for little kids dying in the cold by a barbed wire uh, fence. And that, to me, is denying the faith. That is, yeah. that is using the language of Christianity to do deeply anti-Christian things. Yeah. Now, I, I, I do think, you know, in the context of a very short editorial I obviously didn't give a complete, you know, set of criteria for how to judge what a moral um, migration policy is. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even going to do that right now, surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you could say, well, it's a Mott and Bailey thing and you've just defended the very strong and, you know, it's very sensible Mott. But then there's this Bailey that um, we're just going to like have no border enforcement at all or no border policy. And my whole thing with Mott and Bailey arguments is like, you know what? I like Mott's and I like very well-defined, like precise arguments. And I don't think that that means, I think you just have to be disciplined about not letting yourself then give away the Bailey. It probably won't surprise longtime listeners to the Plowcast or readers of Plow that we don't view ourselves as a policy journal. We are not here to tell um, those of you who are voting members of Congress um, what legislation to craft in response to the migration issue. Um, however, there are certain principles that we are mm-hmm. passionately committed mm-hmm. to, and those do have real-world consequences. Mm-hmm. And I think there's two that we can name, and one is that welcoming the stranger, caring for the orphan and the widow, mm-hmm. are these, as we said in earlier versions of the, this uh, series, Susanna, are really basic kind mm-hmm. of unconditional, categorical, imperative-type things, uh, to use very non-biblical language, um, that are in the Bible and that you do not get away from by just, you know, waffling about prudence and so forth. We really do need to take seriously Mm -hmm. that, you know, if you're a believing Christian, Mm -hmm. um, Scripture and tradition tell us that God will, as judge, will hold us to account in a particular way for how we treat people in this situation. And we kind of better fear God and take it very seriously. Um, Does that tell you exactly what to do when a lot of Haitian migrants Mm -hmm. are crossing the Rio Grande? Mm -hmm. 
know, but it better inform it pretty well. (laughs) And the other one is actually something that our good friend, um, Pater Edmund Waldstein, um, the Thomist monk from Stift Heiling in Kreuzen, Austria, spoke about in the earliest episode of this podcast. Uh, I'm not Catholic, but I do largely subscribe to Catholic social teaching, uh, which uses the language of the universal destination of goods. And he talks, use this cool word, Fringsen, right? Um, Which is German for basically the under Catholic social teaching, if you really need something to survive, you're allowed to take it. Jean Valjean did nothing wrong. I stand. Exactly. So so rather than calling it Fringsen or speaking of the universal destination of goods, which you know, is a lot of syllables, we could just say the Jean Valjean thing is okay. And that also applies to migrants trying to get in here. Mm -hmm. And there is actually one thing that I kind of wanted to mention, um, which is that like one of the arguments that you especially see people in certain reformed camps making, and I'm thinking in particular of what is called the whatever, this is so super inside baseball, but the Westminster West position or R2K. And it Come, it's like a very, it's a particular uh, reformed political theology, which basically wants to say, in a weird way, it's a little bit Niburian, but like weird Niburian. It's, it wants to say that like the law and the gospel are two utterly different things politically, to the point that it is the job of the church to preach the gospel, and it is the job of the state to enforce the law, and that our go- our commands under the gospel should have no essentially no impact on political. Um, deliberation or political or political ethics. And I just don't think that that, I mean, that, that is a very specific, um, position, which is not the majority position. It's not St. Thomas's position in that very, you know, harsh with that very harsh division. Um, what it would mean just to sort of like, you know, check yourself if that is starting to sound, uh, you know, good to you is that, it is wrong for a king to be gracious. It is wrong for a king to be merciful. Um, it's wrong to do, for a king to pardon people or to listen to the voice of the poor. Um, that that is failing his office as enforcer of pure justice. And that is insane to me because kings are supposed to imitate God. And just as all people in authority are supposed to mediate God's authority to the world um, with justice and mercy and, you know, behaving towards the world as Adam failed to do and as we're called to do in Christ. And so that kind of um, harsh division between law and gospel politically, I think, is a non-starter. But it's also something that I think is behind some people's ideas here. It, it may be behind them. Uh, it just seems inhuman yeah. to divide up one's actions like that. Um and at the risk of uh, doing 1930s analogies, we can just remember that there have been times in not so distant history when people invoked uh, Romans 13 and this strict separation of the state's authority from the church's uh, ethic, if you want to use that language, uh, in ways that were not so great. Yeah. And just to sort of one other reminder of what I think is a kind of better model here is what I would call, again, Oscar Romero integralism, where like it is the church's job. It's the job of a pastor to command under, you know, using his authority to speak God's word to those who are his flock 
politicians and others to command them to imitate Christ and to do that politically and to remind um, those in political authority what it means to actually be just according to God's standards and actually be merciful. Okay, so we also have another, we have a question from, um, if not friend of the pod, then at least close follower of the pod, uh, who shall remain nameless, but who has uh, posted a couple of times when I've posted or when Plow's posted about um, basically things having to do with refugees and the refugee crisis. What's the, how many refugees, how many Afghan refugees has the Bruderhof taken in? And so the implication here is, you know, you want me to take in refugees to my community, i.e. America, but you refuse to do anything concrete and you are maintaining your very well-ordered community. So Pete, what's the Bruderhof doing about Afghan refugees? So we've had, to directly answer the questions, we've had three to four people uh, almost all the time since the Afghan a refugee crisis kind of began uh, working with the organization Save the Children, with whom we have a long partnership, um, actually welcoming Afghan refugees. Uh, a monastic community, so to speak, um, is obviously not the place where these refugees are being settled, but we do have kind of boots on the ground mm-hmm. welcoming refugees, and uh, there is, you know, um, the best place and way to take care of, of them when they come is, is as so often, uh, the people who do it well, um, rather than, you know, um, just people putting up refugees in your basement and wondering what they're meant to do next. Mm-hmm. So, but we are, we do absolutely, um, you know, take seriously the commitment that when we say things like welcoming refugees is good, um, it's something that we, if, especially if we're able to, mm-hmm should do something about. And I think that one of the things to sort of one of the things that was implied by that and by sort of thinking more carefully about these things is like, this is not something that we do in order to like make ourselves feel good. And therefore like, it is not necessarily the case that putting up a refugee in your basement is going to be the best thing for that refugee. Like figuring out where people who are in desperate need can best get on with their lives and can best be integrated into local communities. And like, the point is not to like own the cons. The point is not to like, um, you know, intentionally disrupt American civilization, whatever, you know, of, of various kinds. The point is to like actually help people in ways that are effective. And as we mentioned, like one of the best ways to do that is to do things to prevent there being refugee crises to begin with, um, which is one of the many reasons why we tend to be pretty down on war. Um, we just don't think it's a great thing. So there's that, that is that. Um, but one thing that, you, something that you were talking about did kind of like bring up is the Bruderhof itself does have borders. They're more powerful borders than national borders. You take lifetime vows, you renounce private property when there's a very strong, there's nothing fuzzy about who is in the Bruderhof and who's not, including, you know, your, your own children are not full members. Um, and so, you know, it is not bad to have boundaries. We've, the borders are important. Do you want to talk about that? Well, the, of course, the Bruderhof, like like any community, has borders, you know. And uh, I can understand why folks would be worried that the national community um, 
also needs borders. Otherwise, sort of solidarity among its citizens uh, would be kind of imperiled and diluted. And sort of what's what's the point of saying we're all Americans who support each other if it's not even clear who's American to start with? Um, again, you, you, you mentioned the, the parallel to the family, right? You know, um, the point of a family is not to exclude, and yet a family that included all 7 billion human beings on the planet wouldn't really be a family, right? Um, it needs to make a difference that you're my relative uh, for the purpose of, you know, being part of my family to mean anything. And uh, so I think there is, you know, there's, there's a kind of natural worry there on the, the national side though. I, I do question to what extent that there really is a national community. Mm -hmm. um, I think the United States, you know, uh, with 300 plus million people in it is a little big to be, you know, hugely worried about cultural cohesion. Like, what is that thing anyway? For for the Bruderhof itself, yes, uh, we are a church. And that means, um, as we were talking in regard to Christendom, it needs to be a place where you want to be mm -hmm. and also where you feel that God has called you and where you submit to the discipline and the order and the expectations of the community. But of course, hypothetically, if an Afghan family wanted to join the Bruderhof. Absolutely. And we have had stuff like that happen over the course of our history. You know, the Bruderhof has moved around a lot uh, in the course of its hundred years. You know, Germany, Liechtenstein, Netherlands, England, Paraguay, Uruguay, United States, Australia, England again. Uh, South Korea now. And so although we kind of have a pretty strong kind of German cultural DNA, and I do on my mother's side of the family, there's actually people from quite a few different nationalities who have joined. And, uh, you know, our, our direct neighbors for a long time is this South Korean family who's, you know, fully part of our community uh, and who try to pass on their own culture traditions to their kids um there's people who grew up in paraguay paraguayans guarani folks you know mm -hmm. um i'm not making a you know bruderhof is benton ad claim here just that it's actually not culturally defined it's a mm -hmm. church mm -hmm. that depends on an individual calling to live you know in the spirit of the early church so there's also um Eberhard Arnold, the founder of the Bruderhof, also had a kind of like vision beyond the very tightly knit, highly committed, um, vowed community uh, as to how the Bruderhof as a, how those borders could be a little bit more porous or how those borders could be um, stretched. Yeah, he always saw the community itself as a kind of nucleus with concentric circles mm -hmm. of uh, folks who are moved, in his language, right, um, moved by the same spirit mm -hmm. Um, who are working in their different places and their different vocations uh, for that same renewing of the world, mm -hmm. you know, in the spirit of, of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, a, that's really uh, one big reason why the community supports Plow, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we try to be one part of that. Mm -hmm. I, I keep sort of having half thoughts that I've not fully formulated about 
starting something like a Bruderhof tertiary order, um, which I think would be fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that also informs the way that we, as Plow, um, look at the people who we collaborate with or publish or um, consider friends. We do not agree. Like we do, we we don't have. We're not super good at the friend enemy distinction. We're we're just not great at it, in the sense that like we disagree with people profoundly on certain issues, but we tend to work on the the places that we do agree with people on. And we don't try to, you know, enforce a kind of uniformity of thought on the people who we publish, on the people who we do, you know, partner with. We we find the good. We find the good that they are doing. We find the place that they that we think they're responding to the spirit and we work with that. And I really do think there is a sense in which encouraging people who are Catholic to be very good Catholics mm-hmm. and people who are Anglican to be very good Anglicans and people who live in the Bruderhof to be very good, you know, Bruderhof members and people mm-hmm. who are Jewish to, you know, take their Judaism seriously um, is not um, just a kind of, you know, isn't all beautiful that we're different thing, mm-hmm. but is a real key to people f- um, doing what they're actually meant to be doing in life. Mm-hmm. And I have, as my authority here, uh, you know, a certain Cardinal Ratzinger who in, in, in a meeting with members of our community like 25 years ago said, you know, the, the solution to the differences between, you know, Catholics and the Bruderhof or Anabaptist communities is not in some type of diplomatic solution where we both sign on the dotted line between carefully negotiated doctrinal statements that we can both affirm, but that for both of us, to really seek to follow Jesus as intensively as we can in the traditions that we uh, find ourselves in and are committed to, because if we're following the same Jesus, then that is what will bring yeah. unity uh, and not the other. And I think that is what we try to encourage uh, through Plow, yeah. um, not a sort of superficial sameness. Mm-hmm. So. One of the big differences that is not minimized at all uh, in America these days is um, what you might call the culture war. And we got a, an email from a listener, um, actually a reader, saying, I found your Beyond Borders issue to be very socialist. I'm tired of hearing the same progressive pieties from everywhere, including religious organizations. It seems to detract from the gospel. So are we SJWs? Aren't we just swimming with the progressive stream? Like, are we that annoying? Right. Well, that's absolutely why we did the Beyond Borders issue uh-huh. was just to prove to all our progressive friends that we're actually okay. Yeah. And the next thing that we're probably going to do is going to do an issue where we sign up for every other progressive. Yeah. Cause. You know, and <laughs> because O'Sullivan's law is true, uh, the famous one that any uh, organization that doesn't specifically identify itself as right wing is going to eventually be left wing. And that surely applies to Plow too, mm-hmm. right, Susanna? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've found that. Um, <laughs> so actually, everything we just said is not true. Um, I think that any really thorough Christianity is going to tick off everyone eventually. Yeah. So welcoming refugees, for instance, and I assume that that is what is being referred to mm-hmm. by this um, reader, and I, 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 I'm 
glad for the sort of candid response there. It's just kind of part of loving your neighbor, but that command to love your neighbor is part of the same gospel that tells us some other things, for instance, about no divorce and remarriage and um, the sanctity of life um, and some other issues that aren't nearly as popular on the left side of the spectrum right now. Yeah. I mean, so one of the ways to think about this is that if we make you angry, at least we're also going to make your enemies angry. Which is sort of comforting. Do you think that would comfort this particular reader? I think so. So Plow has a pretty firm commitment to a range of things. And I I don't know why it is that everyone allows that right-wing, left-wing sorting to be applied to them mm-hmm. when Christianity and the gospel mm-hmm. predates all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just silly. Um, is Dorothy Day, you know, a left wing uh-huh. or a white right wing person? <laughs> is, is Oscar, Oscar Romero, Romero who we mentioned, is he left wing or right wing? I mean, you know, that Opus yeah. Day background, yeah. he must be a terrible reactionary, yeah. except um, I believe at the time he was actually, you know, um, undermined significantly at the Vatican by people who accused him of being a communist, even after his death. Fannie Lou Hamer, is she a reactionary or is she progressive? So we could go down the list. I think this kind of returns us in a weird way to our discussion about Christendom at Mm -hmm. the beginning, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you are thinking about a particular cultural and political arrangement Mm -hmm. as the Christian thing that needs defending... Mm -hmm the road from there to defending things that are really unchristian just so that that structure doesn't get disturbed um, becomes quite short. Mm-hmm. And if the idea is that we can't let in Haitians and Afghans, um, who at least in the Haitians' case may be far more committed Christians than we are, uh, and, and possibly with the Afghans too, um, far more committed Muslims than we are in the name of of protecting sort of the integrity of our country. Well, leave that aside. We are told to love our neighbors ourselves. Christ in Matthew 25 tells us what it means uh, to clothe the naked, feed the hungry, give the glass of water, visit the prisoner. So we have pretty s- clear marching orders, and maybe we should just kind of stick to those and not worry about whether that makes us look socialist or not. I mean, if the corporal works of mercy m- make us seem like SJWs, I-, I mean, at least some of them will make us seem like SJWs, and then some of them won't. We can also say that Plow is an adamantly uh, pro-life magazine. We do have an editorial position on that. Those are all things that are part of the same gospel that tells us to take care of the refugee, the stranger, the prisoner, and to um, care about people with disabilities, to care about the fact that increasingly across the world, all babies with Down syndrome are aborted before they can be born. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that consistent Christian love for the powerless, Mm -hmm. for those who are marginalized, those for whom God especially cares, um, needs to guide us. And 
I think if we practice thinking along those lines more, I mean, I find myself affected by these same, you know, progressive versus liberal, you know, thought patterns too. But maybe we just need to like train our brains not to go down, not to think in those terms, Mm -hmm. you know, to do so less and less. And to, in doing that, be less worried about our own position and therefore more able to like look at the people who might disagree with us both from the left and from the right as human beings who God loves and who are similar to us and who are different from us and who it is not our job to fix, but it is our job to sort of be honest with. Our founding editor, Edward Arnold, has a great quote that I often think of in this regard, especially right now when people are so apt to disassociate themselves with somebody else just based on the fact that they're on the wrong side of, of this polarization, right? And he, he was, again, in the 30s, um, he came from a religious socialist background himself, but he after 1933, when Hitler came to power, he felt pretty strongly that we cannot treat Nazis as demons. They're the same human beings that we were dealing with last year, but now they call themselves Nazis. So we must hate their hateful ideology, but we must treat them as people. Um, nobody is a devil. Uh, and we must extend the same love to them um, that we ex- wished to extend to them last year before they had signed up for this mm-hmm. stuff. And he uh, he had this one line that I, I, I'll just close my comments on this with, and he said, you know, um, we are in all ways untimely. All right. So we have come through another series of six uh, episodes of the Plowcast. And as always, we are going to kind of do a little recap. What have we learned from doing these po- this podcast, from doing um, this issue of the magazine? Uh, let's review. Right. So, I, th- I mean, as always, it's so comforting just to be confirmed in my own opinions that I had at the beginning uh-huh. and not uh-huh. to have changed any of them. Yeah. But that's uh, not quite... That's not quite true, actually. You know, one way we could structure this, Suzanne, is by going back to the three theses that we kind of sketched out at the beginning of this series. Um, And I'll just uh, refresh any uh, listeners' comments, because, of course, you've listened to that first episode. And uh, the first thesis was that roots and nationhood are good, I think you said even nationalism. And nationalism is good, mm-hmm. if you define it the right way. Uh-huh. And the second is that welcoming refugees is very good and is actually required. We talked about that today. And the third is that Christendom is good, but we have asterisks. asterisks and we talked about some of those today. Yeah. Um, so... Of all of those, I think it's actually the first one that I've been thinking the most about. Me too. The nationhood and the rootedness piece. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to me that although there's all kinds of bad nationalisms around, Mm -hmm. it remains that a real sense of 
of nationhood of belonging to a people and its story mm-hmm. uh is really important mm-hmm. um and i think in, in in talking about some of this stuff um there's a lot more work to do mm-hmm. in terms of explaining what the good form of nationalism looks like yeah I mean, one of the things that I feel like, you know, when you kind of get into something, you start realizing how, how much you don't know and what your gaps are. And I feel like one of my major gaps here is like the actual political philosophy of nations, nation states, and getting into the ideas, like, what were the problems that that was trying to solve? What are What is the strongest case that can be made for them? Um, and you know, one thing that I've been thinking about recently is the fact that the UN Declaration of Human Rights includes the right to national self-determination, meaning like essentially the right to a nation, a people having a state with borders that it can control is one of the sort of standard understandings, like standard human rights that this quite like on the normy end of progressive, but quite progressive document in circa 1948, um, was saying was absolutely crucial to uphold. And and virtually self-evident. Yeah, virtually self-evident. And like, obviously the context is, was hugely different. Like what they were talking about was something like, you know, decolonial, like anti-colonialism. Sure, because in 1948, there were many, many, you know, clearly identifiable nations that did not have the ability to exercise that right of self-determination. Right. So under, both under, um, the USSR, which was, you know, essentially an uh, an evil empire, as we might say, it was at least a um, well. And the British and the French empire yeah. were very much intact. The United States controlled was directly controlling, you know, many areas, uh-huh. and um, had certainly not let go of its uh-huh. sort of imperial ambitions in, in the Caribbean and in the Philippines yeah. and so forth either. And so it was like one of the things that it was trying to do with this statement was to sort of uh, ease the British Empire in particular, I think, out of the empire business and usher in nation states like India, which was founded in, um, I want to say, 1948 was partition. 1947 was partition um, into, Israel, into onto the world state. Israel. State, and Israel being sort of as we've as we've talked about, and as Yoram Hazoni, you know, outlines in his book on nationalism, uh, where he makes a strong argument for it, uh, Israel being sort of the exemplar of yeah. the nation and the nation state. Yeah. So I do feel like you know I am a strong imperialist by my own very strange definition, um, meaning I think that empire is in various ways, a superior political form to the nation state, or at least can be. Um, And also that I think that America kind of is an empire and we should admit it because trying to make us into a nation state gets really gross. Um, But I do think that like, I'm interested in kind of my own personal, you know, following nerdy rabbit trails that I live my life doing. I feel like I want to get more into making the best case I can for the nation state in to myself. Right. So I, I don't personally feel like I have a political th- philosophy of uh-huh. nation states. I don't even particularly feel like I, I need to have one. Uh-huh. Um, 
But it did make me think, I guess, just quite practically, how do I raise my kids? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is why Michael Brendan Doherty's book, My Father Left Me Ireland, left a big impression on me. Mm-hmm. Um, because in that book, he writes again about how this absent Irish father um, didn't wasn't really a father to him, but it did... Uh, provide a bridge to Irish culture, Irish language, a whole identity that would otherwise just have been lost in, you know, the sea of New Jersey suburbia where he was, you know, mm-hmm. growing up. And I think, you know, of the ways that it's was so important to me that my parents brought me up with a sense that of, of connection, you know, going back, generations um not in you know some sort of obnoxious way it's not like you know if you go back up you know the momsen family tree there's you know f- famous rich and aristocratic people i mean you know there's a couple here and there but they're, they're really not very notable um but rather just a sense of of connection of of obligation also um a sense that there were things that your ancestors, mm-hmm. you know, the ones who went to Africa and Sierra Leone after mm-hmm. being, one, you know, in one of the early Oberlin classes to, mm-hmm. you know, um, be missionaries there. Mm-hmm. Or uh, the ones who, you know, fought in World War One or whatever, mm-hmm. that, that their lives have a meaning, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, that relative who died at age 17 after volunteering to fight for the Kaiser... Um, out of his high school class and is buried somewhere in Paris, you have a connection to him. Um, and, you know, he's part of your story. He's part of your life. And that that is something that, you know, if you don't have that, may, maybe you're a little more susceptible to just yeah. being shaped by the zeitgeist in, in a lot of negative ways and not really knowing who you yourself are and not being really kind of in touch with, and this sounds a bit therapeutic, but sort of in touch with, you know, who you yourself really are. And you're more likely to kind of chase cultural Mm will-o'-the-wisps and and allow yourself to be formed in a bad way by just whatever happens to be an offer in 2021. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is so powerful about that is that it really you know, you can't, you don't choose your parents. Like if you're, if you want to get interested in who you actually are in terms of the the gift of self that you got from your parents and that they got from their parents and try and trace that story back, you, you can't shape that story. That's that story. You can, you can like research it. You can like ask your parents about it. You can like t- tell the stories again to your children, but you're not, this is not a bespoke thing. This is not a you trying on different identities to find one that feels right. This is a more of a finding out. This is a, who am I not by look, like looking inside myself or like, um, to find a true self that's pre cultural or, uh, the self that is not shaped by your family. And it's also not deciding who I want to be and creating a kind of, you know, Instagram style avatar of the best imaginative self that you can be. It's really something more like, um, it's, it's more like archeology. span It's more like excavation. It's more like discovery. You're finding out who you are by finding out who your family was. And then the nation is an extension of that family, right? Because your family's story is this, uh, takes place in a national context. And, and that's what's, you know, uh, 
the opposite of of a kind of false chauvinism about one's family or one's nation is an honest connection with one's family story and a, and a love for the people that came before you can very much go with the sort of humbling you know discovery of their um false false moves so not only you know I had not only have my grandmother herself who you know fled nazi germany and you know was a refugee and got away also have her brother who joined the nazi party because he was scared that the private school the family had run for generations would be shut down unless he did and just did the coward's move um but then when uh, the soviets invaded afterwards um, and they made him the same offer, said, no, I've, I've burnt myself once, and I'm not joining the Communist Party. Um, I've, I've sold my, my soul once too many already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and learning a story like that and knowing, you know what, this is kind of flesh of my flesh did this, yeah. um, that tells you something a bit, a little important about, you know, uh, what it means to uh take responsibility for the decisions that might lie before, you know, yeah. me or my kids. And I think we can do that in, an, in a national way, too, um, with all the kind of hemming and hawing we've done about, you know, what our nation is really. Um, mm-hmm. The fact is that there is some sort of peoplehood and story that we are mm-hmm. part of by being part of a nation. And... It, it's helpful and good to identify it just so that it's a little easier not to point the finger at previous generations and say, you know, what horrible people, how could they do that? But realize, you know what? Human beings can do really, really, really bad things. And just because we belong to the same story as the people and are, you know, in some cases biologically descended to them, we need to learn a lot about those things and take responsibility for them and you know, atone for them. And, um, our lives need to be in some sense a response to, to the harms that, that, that the people I belong to have done. But not just that. I mean, that becomes, there can be a kind of narcissism of worst people in the worldness. And I think that one of the things that, um, America has a tendency to do is put itself at the center of all stories. And sometimes that can be at the center of the story of being bad guys. And I think that the, a a sort of fuller and more realistic understanding of the story of America is another kind of thing that we can do for ourselves, which is not just to say that like we need to invert the pure jingoism into a pure, um, we are, we are of all people the most wretched and, and hideous. It it means that history is really complicated. <laughs> right. And of course, you know, apart from Native Americans, very few, few of us or none of us are just American, yeah. right? Uh, we all came from other places. Mm-hmm. So there's those stories too. There's those nations too that we belong to. And I think in that sense, although I'm not really sure about the language of empire at all, um, I do think, you know, that overlapping quality, recognizing mm-hmm. that I'm not just American. I also, you know, come from an Irish or, you know, Korean or, you know, Vietnamese family. Mm-hmm. And I have that nation in me too. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of helps 
guard against that uh, American egomania mm-hmm. that either we're, you know, MAGA or we're, you know, the ultimate source of evil in the world, which is both, you know, bogus, right? Yeah. And 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 knowing a bit of other countries' history, you know, will remind us of that pretty fast, you know, and get, you know, approach it with a bit more of a sense of humor. The um, the other thing I've realized I didn't know very much about, and I still don't, so I'll just sort of register this as a question, is uh, in our conversation with John Milbank in an earlier episode, we talked about the question of do does a nation have a soul, yeah. and do nations have calling uh-huh. in history? Now, if you go back to the 19th century romantics, you know, the answer is... Absolutely yes, yeah. you know, um, you know, a fishta will, you know, absolutely be very comfortable talking about the calling of England and the calling yeah. of France and the calling of Germany, and even um, our favorite anarcho-syndicalist uh, atheist uh, Gustav Landauer, mm-hmm. um, in his wonderful writings, talks about the calling of mm-hmm. these different nations mm-hmm. um, in a way that. Most, let alone progressives, most moderns just would find weird and a bit creepy, right? Um, But I do wonder, is there something there? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that it, 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 one of the things that when I started reading the Old Testament after I converted was most surprising to me was that God seemed to notice nations like, Nations show up in the Old Testament not as like purely ad hoc, um, you know, nominalist collection of collections of individuals or even collections of families, but as things in themselves, which are responsible before God for their own actions and which God sees as a whole. You know, I have a thousand questions about this and there are a thousand sort of theological niceties that one would want to um, add on to that not least, like I kind of jokingly asked John Milbank, but it's not really a joke. Like if we're going to take these ideas seriously, like is the nation when we're talking about the UK, is it the UK? Is it England? Is it, um, an idealized version of England? Is it like that? And there are obviously incredibly dangerous ways that that can go. And in fact, with the German romantic, um, understandings of nationhood did go. But at the same time, if we want to take the scripture seriously, you know, not only does God see nations, but there even are indications that nations or political bodies at least have angels that are attached to them specifically. You know, the the book of Daniel talks about this. I have no idea how this works, but it is, it's another challenge to the kind of um, essentially nominalist, essentially materialist and individualist idea of how reality works, which I'm always up for. You know, I, I think of a comment made by one of our guests, uh, Dan and Jay Jaganathan, uh, who's contributed to our issue. And, uh, he said he was talking about America and of mm-hmm. course his own experience of, you know, uh, growing up in first in India and then Jamaica and then becoming an American citizen, um, choosing America. And what America is that, that mm-hmm. you're choosing? What, what does it mean to be patriotic? Which mm-hmm. he says, you know, I, I feel very patriotic and a lot of people are surprised by that. But he said it's, it's a, a question of values. Uh, and this is the language he used. 
of, and he referred to Frederick D- Douglass and his uh, very eloquent call to America to be mm-hmm. America, mm-hmm. Uh, to be this land of freedom and of justice um, and of equality and uh, a very actually a biblically based vision of what America should be. Uh, maybe that is part of the answer to the question of what is America's calling is to America's calling is to be the country that Frederick Douglass wants it to be spoke of. Yeah. And, and that it does not necessarily mean so like, you know, one of the things that has happened in the last 20 years is that we tried to make a whole lot of other countries look like us and that didn't work very well. And that is not to say that um, justice is not part of every country's, country's calling, because it is. And that is not to say that freedom, properly defined, is not part of every country's calling, because it is. But there is an American flavor of what those things mean, and maybe even an American flavor of what it means to be cosmopolitan um, or international as a, as a nation, um, the whole nation of immigrants idea, that is maybe more specific to America. And I, I just, I wonder whether thinking about what Douglas was specifically responding to, the question of slavery, um, whether there's a particular way in which America's calling is to wrestle with and seek to atone for and seek to move forward from and seek to not reject each other on the basis of questions of racism and questions of, um, I don't know, just things that are specific to our own history that are not true of the histories of all other nations. You mentioned earlier in, in this series, Susanna, and we've talked about, you know, that great passage in Revelations where each of the nations and the kings of the earth all come into the heavenly Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps there we land up again. Mm-hmm. Uh, those nations need to be themselves. Mm -hmm. They need to be the nations that they were created to be in order to come into all together to, to the heavenly Jerusalem and bring their various gifts. Not Mm -hmm. all the, not all the same. um, in you know, to build the kingdom and that their, their peoples, um, I think in that sense can be, proudly part of those nations as they all you know come streaming in mm-hmm. and that should encourage us you know mm-hmm. um to have that same kind of not 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 to think that everything about our country is you know makes it god's gift to humanity but realize that it's not just happenstance and maybe there is a way in which we need to listening to frederick Douglass, listening to a lot of other voices um including the founding fathers, I say, as a post-liberal, I, I, I will give the founding fathers their due, sort of. Um, maybe we need to listen to those people and find out who we are as a nation and be ourselves as thoroughly as possible and as justly and mercifully as possible and then present ourselves before God as that thing. Well, thank you for listening to this last episode of this uh, series of the Plowcast. We'll be back in six weeks with um, more new content. And actually next week's, you know, for the next six weeks, there are going to be um, read aloud uh, pieces from our issue that you can listen to. 
as always, get in touch with us however you'd like to. You can drop a comment on YouTube, on Twitter. Um, you could email me, uh, sblack.pq at gmail.com. We'll see you back in six weeks.